Thank you. Please be seated. Thank you all. If you want to join us on any Sunday, we have all of these musicians plus more. And they all play for the El Paso Symphony. I'm related to several of them. This is my son, Ian. It's my son, Michael. (laughs) My son, Marcos. My daughter, um, Leslie. And I just forgot my daughter's name. And then, of course, my sister, Paulette, and my favorite cousin, Leanne. So, anyway, they're terrific. They're here every Sunday and so faithful to uh, lead us in worship. I didn't introduce myself. I'm Johnny Cash. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, welcome. On behalf of New City Fellowship and Christ the King, we're delighted. We love hosting Presbyterian because... I think the reason that I love hosting it is because I get to see all of you, and it's here on our turf. We make the rules. We do it our way, and uh, (laughs) but thank you so much for being here. You know, when we were trying to figure out who was going to preach, we knew our docket was going to be full, 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 so I'm going to preach a very short sermon, uh, only maybe an hour and a half. It'll be fine, but we... We didn't know who was going to preach. We didn't know how much time we were going to have. So, you know, we just kind of put it off. I told Jeff, because New City is co-hosting, I said, Jeff, I want you to preach. And he said, no, no, no. Come on, Jeff, preach. No, no, no. And I kept pressing him. Finally, he just he blew up at me, this sweet guy. He said, I don't want to preach. We need to hear from the old guys. <laughs> Thank you, the old guys. The fathers, that's right. I can't say fathers and brothers anymore because I'm, I just say brothers. But I'm a father. I'm sure that you, um, you all uh, have familiar with this scripture. I say all that because we really didn't know who's going to preach tonight. I wrote this sermon about 10 minutes ago. So I'm going to read to you. I'm not going to have you open your Bibles. You can if you want, but it's a very familiar passage. Genesis chapter 3, and I'm only going to read a few verses and then talk briefly about this because I think it is one of the most important things that we as Christians, and especially those of us that have been called into the gospel ministry uh, in the unique way that pastors and elders and deacons and those of us who serve, uh, our women's councils and all of those of us, we've got to get something drilled down into our soul so it's so deep that nothing and no one can dislodge it. And folks, I got to tell you, it can be dislodged even among the best of us who mostly hear Christ the King, the best of us. So (laughs) listen to the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows 
that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and she ate and she gave to her husband who was with her. Then the eyes of them both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. I'm sure you've heard about this uh, psychiatrist, a guy that had mental problems. He goes to a psychiatrist and he tells uh, the psychiatrist, you know, after the introductions and all that, I need help, I'm a mess, and psychiatrist said thank you and whatnot and said you know come sit down on the couch and lay stretch out on the couch and the guy stretches out on the couch and and uh, he gets out his legal pad the psychiatrist and his pen he says okay uh, let's let's start at the beginning and the guy says great in the beginning I created the heavens and the earth no good <laughs> Okay, it's a stupid joke. But listen, it makes the point, folks, that we of uh, we should know this, but we don't sometimes know it, that the great sin of mankind, womankind, our kind, our sin has always been putting ourselves in the place of God, wanting something that he said not to have. It's not like the tree of good and evil was a bad tree. There was nothing wrong with the tree. Everything he made in the garden, everything he made in this creation was good. He just didn't want them to know in that intimate way what evil was. Maybe they did. Some scholars believe that Adam and Eve knew what the difference was between uh, evil and good. They were created in the image of God after all. But he wanted them to know good, the good of his creation. And instead, they looked away, listen, from the tree of life. Whatever that was and whatever that means, the tree of life, they looked away from that tree that God had promised for them and looked to something else. Once a month, I probably more than, I don't know, maybe Dawson can tell you, uh, I try to tell our congregation, those of you that are here from Christ the King, um, forgive me, but every month I try to tell our congregation, those those of you that went to seminary, you know that uh, we, we're trained in hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is how you're to interpret Scripture. The reason that I picked these verses from Genesis 3 is simply because you cannot even begin to understand your Bible unless you understand Genesis chapter 3. 
You want to know why? Here it is. Two pages. That's one through three. Just two little pages. Everything else, 1,267 pages in this particular Bible, are because of what happened in that first, that third chapter. Everything. You can't read the rest of your Bible. You don't even try to read the rest of your Bible unless you have done serious time in these verses. Seriously thinking about what happened to the human race. What happened to us? In the face of our God, a glorious God who planted a garden and put us there and gave us everything we needed and a tree of life. And we still were not satisfied. And folks, you know, we can learn this. Christians, we know this. This is nothing you don't know. But it doesn't take much to knock us off track. It's easy to read these passages and these things about the tree and the garden and the serpent and this and that and just get, you know, I know all that Sunday school stuff. No, 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 no. This is the guts of our faith right here in these few verses. I get asked all the time, sure you all do too. We've been going through Romans this past year and it's taken a lot longer than we thought. And uh, when we got in Romans chapter 1, you know, there's uh, 16 through 32, Paul goes into this amazing diatribe against humanity and why humanity is in the shape it's in. And all of you, pastors, and all of the rest of us, all of us have been asked or accused. We have people tell us all the time, why did God make the world the way he did? And how can you say there's a good God? And why did you do this and that? Accusing God. And you know something? It's time for us and our churches to start pushing back and say, you want to know something? God didn't create this world the way it is. We did. We invented AK-47s. We invented missiles and tanks and bombs and, and cancer. and You name it, we are responsible. Not Him. He gave us a tree of life. What is wrong with us? Humanity had better start taking responsibility for what it has done. And the church, we have a message of hope for this world that's broken. They want answers, folks. They want to know. And I'll tell you, we don't have to go. I love my whole Bible. But I can tell you this. There's, you, don't have to, you don't have to leave page three. And you can tell somebody all the story of Jesus Christ to where he becomes so glorious, so large, where he fills up the windshield of our lives so that we quit arguing about these petty things that are polarizing our churches, polarizing our country, and God help us polarizing our world. And start to see what the real message of Genesis is aside from as important as all those things are. There is something supreme that is at the top of that cone of certainty and nothing else will fit 
One is God created. The second is man fell. And the third is we sinned and he saved us. Before you get out of chapter 3, one of the guys was asked today about the proto-euangelion, the the proto-gospel of Genesis 3.15. I'll look at it in a minute with you, but think about it. All there. Everything else supports that. There would be no Genesis 4. There would be no Revelation 22. There wouldn't be anything if there was not chapter 3. You know, Satan is, uh, he's a one-trick pony. You know that, right? He has one trick. He's never had two tricks. He has one. And he has been playing that trick on humans for thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, maybe hundreds of thousands of years. We don't know. And you know what? We fall for it. Even the church. I mean, we've been warned a hundred times by our apostles and our prophets. Still fall for it. Satan is a one-trick pony. He questions us. He questions the goodness of God, the character of God, the, the love of God, the grace of God. And we reform people. I mean, oh, we're all about grace. We want to get out there and talk about grace. But we don't give a whole lot of grace. We're impatient when somebody's sanctification doesn't hurry up and get where we want it to be. Their progress isn't fast enough for us. And so we condemn them. And we don't look in the mirror and see what, you know what? If we really were honest with ourselves, which we're not, what would you see in the mirror? What would you be able to say about your sanctification? How long has it taken us to get over our anger, our jealousy, our rage, our, look at me, I'm raging. How long? You want to know how long? It's going to take a lifetime. Some people, it's going to take forever for them to make one little baby step. The fall was cosmic, grotesque. It didn't wound us. It killed us. It stripped us of any hope of ever eating from the tree of life that was not a possibility. One trick pony. Question God's character. Then blatantly, with not even a second thought, accuse Him, impugn Him. While you're in the garden. While you're surrounded, while your stomach's hanging over your belt, you're so fat from all the... I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but you know, the panson of the American. You know, we're so fat and happy, we've got everything we want, and we complain and gripe about everything. I want to spend some time with our brother from Turkey, or some of our brothers and sisters from... Uh, Syria or Lebanon where my family's from. I had, I had family members that were shot in their car in home Syria simply because they were Christians. No. 
We are crazy, folks. We're losing our minds, and we are getting our eye off the ball. If you know anything about flying, I got a pilot's license when I was younger. My wife, too. We had a lot of fun flying until we had kids. They ruined everything. And, uh, you know, when, you, when you're landing a plane, you know, there's these gauges and the ball, and, you know, you've got to keep your eye. If you're going to land on an aircraft carrier, which I never did, you've got to keep your eye on the ball. You've got to want, you, you can't take your eyes off of it. Eugene Peterson wrote a magnificent piece called The Harpooner's Calm. Have any of you read that piece by it's just one page, uh, Eugene Peterson. He talks about what it was like in the whaling days. You know, it's politically incorrect, but back in those days, the harpooner would get his harpoon, he would get up in that boat, and these guys are rowing, the water's splashing the whales all over the place, and that harpooner had to stay focused on the ball. If they were going to get the whale, he couldn't be looking around. He couldn't look at the waves. He couldn't look. And that's what we're called to do. We've got to fix our eyes on the ball. Because, you know, Jesus Christ is in the top of that cone and nothing else is around. Everything else is there to support Him. Amen, Presbyterians? Every word of this Bible is there because of Genesis chapter 3 and every word that comes after chapter 3 is there to fill our windshield, our eyes, our focus on this man. When we turn our eyes from the tree of life to whatever else. I don't know whatever else is out there. There's so many things I could we could spend all morning or all evening. Um, Jack Miller years ago, many of you know Jack Miller. Jack Miller is the one that invented Tim Keller. So if you <laughs> if you have any one, any doubts about that, you just need to go and, and read some of Jack Miller's stuff. But Jack Miller said, you know that there's a sin beneath every sin. And that sin is simply idolatry. And however you define idolatry, I don't know how you all define it, but idolatry is, is this. This is what I learned at seminary at RTS, uh, taking a class from a, a student professor there that was a student of uh, Dr. Miller. And... Um, um, anyway, here's, here's the definitions that I think apply, and I hope that you will like them as well. Stephen Charnock, here's what he said. Listen, this is, people don't think like this anymore, they don't write like this, and it may go over your head. It, I had to read it lots of times to get it in mind, but listen. A man may be said to make a thing his God, when he acts as if, listen to the nuance, if he acts as if something below God could make him happy without God. Or that God could not make him happy without the addition of something else. Thus, listen, amazing. 
Thus the glutton makes a god of his dainties, the ambitious man of his honors, the uncontrolled or incontinent man of his lust, the covetous man of his wealth, the cons- and consequently esteems them as his chiefest good and the most noble end to which he directs his thoughts. Martin Lloyd-Jones simplified it. An idol is anything that occupies the space, the place that God should occupy alone. You guys studied Hebrew, you know, you shall have no other gods before me. That word before in Hebrew has lots of nuance, lots of meaning. But one of the... The primary meaning is not that you have other gods before me in rank or order, but that you have any God in my presence, anywhere that I am, I don't want to see those gods. No gods before me, no gods in front of me. Don't you bring anything in here. Nothing but me. And why? Because nothing else is going to die for you. Nothing else is going to love you. Nothing else is going to save you. Nothing else is going to... They can't do it. And even those of us who love the Scripture, we love the confession, we love, well, the book of our church or whatever, I don't know, but we love this stuff. And it's all important. But if it's not, if all of that is not there to support our Savior Jesus, then it's to me it's dust and ashes. I'm getting old. I'm not going to be around long. And uh, actually, neither are you. You know what? We're so prideful of our, you know, our life and we think we're going to be around forever. It's a, you know that song. So look at verse 6. This is extraordinary. She saw, she took... She ate, she gave. So simple, the act. So hard, it's undoing. That's from Derek Kidner's little commentary, Tyndale commentary. She saw, she took, she ate. She gave, and the knucklehead with her ate too. So simple. So hard. It's undoing. What we have been charged with as ministers of the gospel, and those of you guys that came today and got ordained, this is our heartbeat. Not the simple. That's easy. The hard part is what we're charged with, not just those of us in ministry, every single believer in Jesus. How in the world can you think about what it was in the garden, whatever view you have of creation? That isn't what... He wasn't giving us a scientific explanation 
for the creation of the world, that's ridiculous. He was telling us lovingly, graciously, with all the kindness and pathos of his heart, God is telling us why we can't get to the tree anymore. And yet we'll forget that. We'll go argue about a hundred other things. Not that they're not important. But we'll even divide over it. We'll even impugn our brothers. We'll even scandalize people if we have to. Yes? Well, maybe you don't. I do. I do. And you do too. You're just not being honest. You're Presbyterians. You're supposed to be scrupulously honest, but you're... All right. So hard, it's undoing. Very quickly, let me just finish with this. You know, in the garden, and you all know this, but and my congregation hears it so much, they're, they're probably going to not come on Sunday because they've heard it all again tonight. The man and woman eat the fruit. They realize they're naked, so sin has entered their hearts. They lost their sight. They became, in opening their eyes, they actually became blind. They could no longer see the tree of life. All they could see is their filthy nakedness. And they were ashamed. They go get fig leaves. What a joke that is. And God comes into the garden. You know the story. And he says these words. Here is where you find the heart of your heavenly Father and your Savior and the blessed Holy Spirit who now comes and occupies our lives with us in our hearts, lives with us, goes through all our junk with us. He never never holds His nose. Even when on the worst day of your sin, He didn't hold His nose. So why would He hold His nose later when you slip up in your wonderful sanctification, how well you're doing? You think he's going to hold his nose then? No. I would argue that on our worst day he loved us and and then every other day after that he comes closer. Shake your fist in his face and he's just going to take you like a little child and grab you and wrap you up. The kid's trying to hit you. He's just going to love you to death. Who's talking about that? No, let's pour some wrath down. That'll get him going. Well... Here, he could have done that. If any place there should have been fire and brimstone, here's what happened. This is the heartbeat of our faith, the Christian faith, the gospel faith. Where are you? Where are you? He did not say, I see you. As Derek Kinder said, he didn't drive them out of the bushes, out of the... He drew them out of their hiding. He drew them. He brought them to Himself. He did not drive them out by saying, I see you. He has never said that to me. And if there's somebody that He could say, I see you, it would have been me. I've, I mean, I'm, I look great today, but I didn't look so great some years ago. Our lives are naked. Where are you? The pathos, the heart of this God beyond. Who told you? Listen to his heart, my friend. Listen. Who told you 
You were naked. You could almost hear God's heart break. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten? Have you done it? What have you done? These are the questions. He didn't say one thing to them. He asked them these questions. In that moment, when he said those words, that's when it became hard. It's really hard. Harder than we can even imagine for him to say those words and not just light them up, turn them into french fries. Instead, he said, where are you? Have you eaten? Who told you? What have you done? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him, Life of everlasting life. He didn't come in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him should be made just and blah, 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 blah. Has no meaning. Means nothing. Unless you read that. Where are you? Those words don't have any... Read those. Where are you? Who told you? What have you done? Have you eaten? Then go read John 3.16. And see what happens to your heart. See what starts to fill the windshield of your life, my life, to the, not the exclusion of everything else. The other things are important, but for goodness sakes, everything else must only exist to support that. Am I okay? I'm not going to get deposed from the ministry tonight. This is our message. This is our call, brothers, sisters. You know, if the church of Jesus Christ does not stand up and start declaring this, even if if we have to... Last Sunday I told, we take communion every Sunday. I said, go find somebody you hate and go have communion with them. Because we do. And we should look for that person we don't like. So I'm going to have... Communion with Dawson. (laughs) He knows how much I love him. Let me finish. Listen. What kind of man is this? All man and yet all God. He brings together in his being a startling coalescence of contrarieties. That's, you won't find it in the dictionary. It's like contradictions. In Jesus, we see that he was the meekest and lowliest of the sons of men. Yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that they said the demons cried out in terror at his coming. And yet, so genial, so winsome, so approachable that the children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence 
at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so kind towards sinners, yet no one ever spoke so red-hot scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet, he demanded of the Pharisees how they would possibly escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams, a seer of visions. Yet, for stark realism, he has all of us stark realists soundly beaten. He was the servant of all washing the disciples' feet. Yet, masterfully, he strode into the temple and the hucksters and the money changers fell over one another in their mad rush to get away from the fire they saw blazing from his eyes. He saved others. Yet at the last, he himself, he did not save. This is your king. This is your savior. This is what the old guy is telling all of you, old and young. Fill your windshield with him. He's the only one worthy. Here's what uh, Derek Kidner, the entire quote is. Listen to these words as we come to the table. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave. So simple the act, so hard its undoing. God in the person of His Son, Jesus, will taste poverty and death before the words take and eat become the words of salvation. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, it's so moving for all of us to hear these words to know that your great love is here right before our eyes on this table. The bread, your body, the cup, and your blood. And I pray that if some of us need a shot in the arm, we're exhausted. Over the past three years, it has been horrific. But we're in a new day and we need you. We need you more than ever. We need you to burn away all the chaff so that we can proclaim this man who loved us and gave himself for us. Please, Lord Jesus, help us, save us, and have mercy on us according to your grace. Amen.